You are listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana. I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, visit patreon.com slash Justin Kana. I'd really appreciate it if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this episode, filling up all five stars on iTunes so more people can find us, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. That's right, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinion on these industry stories. If you want to go deeper, full show notes are available on justincana.com slash podcast. If you come across a story you'd like me to talk about, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find it. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. Do you think that looks good? Yeah? Okay. What's up, folks? Justin Kana here. Welcome to episode 76 of the Emulsion Podcast. I don't have a lot to say at the start of today. I, I dropped a 41-minute update video, so I would hope that in that amount of time I could have brought you up to speed on what's new. Uh, so let's just start it up, shall we? Today, we're talking about how to get a table at Tokyo's most exclusive restaurants, Pete Wells reviewing Gem in New York City, uh, Joel Robuchon's passing, the 40 most influential ref- restaurants, a mini doc on America's best new restaurant, and more. So leave your questions down below or wherever you're listening and keep the conversation rolling wherever you're listening. But for now, though, here are a few headline updates in rapid fire fashion. I actually realized I'm not in the correct place where I should be. I should be a little bit more this way. There, isn't that better? because then you can actually see the news stories next to my head. So the New York Times has named its first California-based news critic. Sam Sifton announced in a tweet earlier last week, Tejal Tejal Rao, previously a columnist and reporter for the New York Times, will be leading the charge to, quote, write about restaurants both fancy and not, end quote, across the entire state of California. She will start in the fall after she completes her move to L.A., Next up, Bon Appetit has named its top 10 new restaurants in America. They are in ascending order. So starting from number 10. 10 is Call in Denver, Colorado. Drifter's Wife in Portland, Maine. Yumega Aruka, Arukara in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Che Fico in San Francisco. Nimble Fish in Portland, Oregon. Nyum Bai in Oakland. Friedman's in LA. Ugly Baby in Brooklyn. May Dan in Washington, D.C., and None Such taking the number one spot in Oklahoma City. That number one spot we're going to be getting into later in the show. Eater published a piece all about etiquette, manners, gender, and serving ladies first. If you're into getting a primer or going in a little bit of a deep dive on the history of service, that is linked up in the show notes for your convenience. It's kind of a long piece, and the takeaways for me weren't drastic enough for me to want to cover it in the main show. So that's kind of part of this rapid fire headline section. Thomas Carter, co-owner of Estella and Cafe Altro Paradiso in New York City, has allegations of verbal abuse at his restaurants. He's currently taking time off from the restaurants. A former sommelier that worked for Carter, Nathan Lithgow, says, quote, Thomas has a tendency to speak to his staff in a way that makes them feel totally powerless, end quote. That is not great news for that award-winning restaurant. Again, that was Estella and uh, Cafe Altro Paradiso. 
A Korean grocery store, E-Mart, has a company from Banna Valley that carries packages of varying stages of ripening bananas. From ready to eat to still green, this pack makes sure you can indeed have your ripe banana and eat it too. Corin, the New York City-based Japanese import shop, they do knives and a bunch of tableware, has announced on their Instagram that they will be opening an event space. That not This not only makes it possible for them to host classes of their own, but you can now rent it out. Yes, you. And that's super exciting for anyone wanting to host pop-ups with direct access to like that professional network. The photo that they posted shows like this beautiful countertop, and it looks like they have a ton of equipment uh, like ready to go. There's like a Vitamix and a bunch of induction burners, and um, it looks like they have dry ingredients stocked too. So if you're interested, if you're in the New York area and you want to probably host something where they could probably sponsor some pretty amazing stuff, Corn has your back. A user on Quora asks the question, why do so many restaurants fail? And there was an answer that was published that um, kind of took my fancy. It says, quote, I have this information directly from a bank loan officer whose job it was was to manage loans to hundreds of restaurants. The reason most restaurants go out of business is that owners spend all their money on the decor and have absolutely no idea about the cost of food as overhead in running a restaurant. Basically, people open restaurants and immediately see all their money disappear into the garbage with uneaten food, and they didn't even think past the first few months or weeks even and cannot afford that. It takes at least a year to establish a restaurant and in that time, they throw away a lot of uneaten food. So to cut costs, they start reusing, freezing, microwaving, and that great meal you had the first time there will never be replicated. As the quality goes down, customers stop coming and the restaurant fails. Again, just one guy's opinion. It was something that stuck out to me and coming from not so much like an opinion or a chef or restaurateur's perspective, but this is from a bank loan officer. So they really get like the cut and dry numbers related details. And I just thought that was something interesting and thought something that I should share. All right, that's enough headlines. I had a ton of love from that element uh, on the last show that I did this with a few weeks ago. Uh, so until I hear otherwise, that's I think that's going to be a thing. Rapid fire headlines at the start of the show. So sit back, relax. The real st- show starts right now after I give a shout out to Anthony G, Adrian G, Jonathan R, Sean H, Yosel, uh, Thomas M, and Jack R, all brand new supporters of this show on Patreon. If they aren't brand new, they were actually awesome enough to increase their pledge amount. So I wanted to show some love to those folks. It truly, truly means the world that you guys support the content um, through your hard-earned cheddar. I know how much that means, so thank you. If you have no idea what I'm talking about with patrons and supporting the show, check out patreon.com slash justinkana. It helps keep my content as ad-free as possible and sustainable AF as well. Today's beverage, this might be the unhealthiest beverage we have on the show uh, so far. This is a Mandarin Harritos. Um, Anna had her birthday party. She loves bottled soda at parties, so... We got like two cases, one of Mexican Coke and one of this, and uh, we bought that because we thought that everybody was going to drink it because uh, last year they did at her birthday party, but this this year they weren't they weren't the biggest fans of it for some reason. I don't know who doesn't like bottled soda, and uh, so we have a, 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 a enormous amount of this soda left over. So I'm trying to make a dent in that. Plus. I've been running recently. I went on a six-mile run yesterday, so my body definitely needs the the calories, or at least that's what it's telling me. 
So first up, a piece that caught my eye this week that was titled, quote, getting into Tokyo's top restaurants is harder than ever, end quote. And reasons for that, which is also the subtitle of the article, is, quote, strict members-only policies, limited seating, and favoritism for regular customers can make it near impossible to get a table, end quote. So this article interviews a myriad of industry folks, from chefs to restaurant owners to even travel agents that do all of this legwork for tourists in Japan. And a few quotables include, on Japanese etiquette, uh, Voyagin, which is one of those travel agencies that I talked about, explains, quote, the etiquette for each restaurant, such as rules against wearing perfume and when it's appropriate to remove one's shoes, end quote. And... Also, on top of that, just so you, you folks know, their their commission, Voyagin's commission for booking a table for you at Sushi Sawada is $125. That's for a table for two, just so you know. Um, I didn't know that, so fun fact. Sometimes it comes down to staffing. You actually need to pay humans to include that human touch in your reservation process. Yosuke Suga, a chef at a French-inspired fine dining restaurant, Suga Labo, saying, quote, we can't answer all phone calls, and I don't want to hire more one more employee just as a telephone operator. It is, of course, a way to keep our loyal guests and keep exclusivity, but also to make it easier to control the reservation system, end quote. Andrea Ferrazzi, an author, saying, quote, generally Japanese chefs are much more interested in accommodating their local customers who come over and over again to their restaurants. The relationship is important and builds over time. Tourists are more unpredictable, and this makes some Japanese chefs uncomfortable end quote. And I personally have some differing opinions on this story, and I'm going to share both sides, and then I'm going to tell you my conclusion. So on one hand, I'm a firm believer that using software to automate is such a win, right? The hotel concierge is a dying position because the affluent tech-savvy traveler, the person that is essentially your target market for these high-end experiences, is completely comfortable booking things through their phone for 70 to 90% of their vacation. I think it's ridiculous that you have to have a human taking care of reservations and you're essentially practicing bad business to rely on that. On the other hand, though, I feel like, especially in the U.S., we are way too accommodating to guests sometimes, giving the option to make same-day reservations for tasting menus or allowing a 12-top to just walk in at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday night and serve them whatever they want. Like, no penalty or reputation strike for a last-minute cancellation or just period not showing up uh, are all points that break restaurants financially and through staff morale that also causes a lot of problems right like we all know how it feels to either prep for an insane amount of people and people just not show up or on the flip side having that weird large table come in at last minute and being forced to accommodate them so You don't necessarily want to say no to that business, but it happens so infrequently that you end up going broke on food costs, like that Quora piece we cited earlier, or overstaffing to make sure that you're prepared for when it does happen. So to me, the Japanese are super smart in that relationship mentality. The reservation only mentality where, look, you're booking an appointment to come see me, right? It's not unlike your doctor or your trainer at the gym or your kid's tutoring session. A human being is giving their time and working with a perishable resource to provide you a service. Why should you be able to say that you're going to go there and then just not show up, right? So with any of these other examples I just mentioned, right, like if if you go to the personal trainer, if you're in a group of 10 other people and you show up like 
in a scantily clad workout outfit or if you don't wear deodorant or your behavior is making some others at the table uncomfortable, I think there's a line to draw and when it's crossed, you should say something, right? Like if you're in that elite class and you've never been to the spot before, how do you know what's okay and what's not? And this is in reference to like the Japanese being uncomfortable with tourists etiquette at their restaurants, right? Like if your your culture does something one way and someone's going to come from out of town to, for whatever reason, want to eat at that restaurant and not behave in a way that makes you feel comfortable, I think there's something there. But um, again, I think there's, there's, there's a line to draw and a place to be um, for all of that. We live in a world where there's this 100% money back guarantee on almost everything you buy, and you can get next day shipping on most things. Instant gratification has become very transactional. And the idea that if you're a regular at a restaurant... It just doesn't exist anymore. It's not so common. And people are very much so into what's next and what just opened. So the idea that the people, these high-end restaurants in Japan are focused on building businesses like that is intensely inspiring. I know I'm personally trying to build a list of clients here in Seattle that calls me for all of their needs for food, that very small curated list of people that I'm excited to work with. Um... And that's 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 the ideal. That's the dream, right? And I, I know what they like and what they don't like, and then they refer me to friends of theirs. Um, to me, it, it just makes sense as opposed to chasing the trend, which we've seen flop on its face more times than I can count. And it just ebbs and flows, right? We went from this really relationship-based, loyalty-focused restaurant model back in the day. I mean, like, your grandparents probably were regulars at XYZ restaurant in their city. And then with the internet making things so accessible and easy to navigate, now it comes back to that loyalty mod- model, whereas, like, the past five years or ten years, I would argue, we, we, we've seen the lack of loyalty, Like you go somewhere once to say that you've been there and then you move on to the next one, right? So it's not surprising to see if it takes off in the US, people will complain that they're sick of the same old spots they always go to and something else will come along to serve that pain point, right? It just ebbs and flows. It's always ebbing and flowing. So, but as someone who's been to Japan, I personally don't think I could have gotten my table at Jimbo Choden or my seat at the counter at Jimbo Choden without my chef in Europe contacting a big food writer in Japan to have her literally call Zayu Hasegawa to get me a seat with like 48 hours notice, right? Like, so that feeling of being an insider is very coveted and there's nothing that makes people want something more than to tell them that they can't have it. So I totally get it. There's, 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 there's no stress in that. So I have this model that I've been kind of playing with and toying with at those farmers market dinners that I covered in uh, like my creating a dish video, I think, um, or things to think about when you're balancing flavor. Um, And when we started hosting them, I essentially invited the first eight guests to that dinner. And what I did was I password protected the website page where the tickets could be purchased. And then I gave each of the eight guests at the first dinner a code for the next week. And that's the password to the website. So then they had the choice of either using their password on the site and buying a ticket for next week. So essentially coming again, or they could pass their code along to their friends. Because ultimately, I've had a lot of positive feedback uh, saying when I curate a guest list, it's a great dinner experience, right? But 
I've never been comfortable doing the invite only dinners forever, like making every single event something where I have to invite you because what happens is you eventually get to a point where you have to tell someone that, quote, you're not cool enough, end quote, for the party. And to me, that's never okay. That's never an okay thing to do. So this way, I invited a few friends to the first one, and then the network principle comes into play, so it just grows slowly, and then pretty soon I'm sold out every single week to a curated list of people that I partially helped uh, curate, but it's also like the people who are willing to financially support the project also can then have a say in who gets to come and who gets to not come, right? So... Is it the end-all be-all of dinner reservations? No, but I do think using software to automate the kind of redundant human tasks and then making sure that hospitality and building relationships through humans is crucial for this next wave of restaurants. And how that looks like going forward, I'm not entirely sure, but I just thought it was an interesting piece, uh, and I also had quite a few takeaways on it, so that's why I wanted to cover it. In more specific restaurant news, again, Gem which we've covered before, Flynn McGarry's spot that I've been closely following along with, not just on this show, but on my own, like through Instagram and Twitter, has its first New York Times review from Pete Wells. So spoiler alert, it's two stars out of four stars. So let's unpack that a little. A little. Overall, it seems pretty positive, the subtext of the article saying, quote, teen wonder plays in the big leagues, end quote. But then it quickly switches, where the first line after Flynn's basically bio that Pete Wells starts out writing about it says, quote, still, as I walked into Jim, the first time I was wondering, at some level, whether everyone had been too polite to tell him that his brownies needed more time in the oven, end quote, which is kind of like, shut everybody up. Everyone was like, oh, this is going to be kind of negative. But then it goes a little bit into talking about price and back to praise again, saying, quote, his cooking is nuanced, his plating often lyrical, and the flavors, at least in the spring and summer, have been delicate, subtle, and very fresh. The vegetables and fruits he uses in profusion look and taste as if they have been dropped off the vine right onto the hand-spun, earth-toned ceramic dishes, end quote. He gives a few more dish breakdowns and then a offers a little aside, quote, by the way, Mr. McGarry doesn't make brownies, at least not at Gem, end quote, which which makes me think, does he buy them in? Does he have a friend who makes them at a restaurant? Uh, very mysterious there. I, I don't know. If anybody has more information on that, I'd love to know. It, it's, it's, it's just crazy to me that at that point in the article, he gives a disclaimer that should have been there in the first kind of savage remark that he made, right? But he continues on to talk about the desserts. Quote, dessert after each of my three meals was more or less the same. Bowls of ripe berries served one night with whipped cream infused with chamomile and rose hips and another time with bay leaf and bee pollen ice creams. You couldn't ask for a more refreshing course on a hot summer night, but at the same time, it's clear that he has room to grow as a pastry chef. End quote. So delving into the service a little bit, it's one of the several hiccups that keep a meal at Gem from gliding smoothly along. Quote, servers may shoot their cuffs before fiddling with some small details of a table setting, a fussiness that is not in keeping with the graceful, relaxed tone of cooking. Wine glasses could sip empty for long stretches, and the wines themselves, both whites and reds, were almost always too warm. End quote. So on a more macro note, He's talking about like little service details, but then on a bigger picture note, he says, quote, Mr. Flynn is much more polished as a chef than a restaurateur is understandable. He may need a more experienced partner to straighten out the dining room and to help him edit the menus too. With each meal, I had the sense that there was at least two superfluous courses and occasionally Mr. McGarry seems to be straining as he reaches for the short of, sort of razzle dazzle you'd get at Alinea or 11 Madison Park, 
Mr. McGarry obviously learned a lot from his mentors, but he can cook in his own voice now, and it may be time to leave his idols behind, end quote. Can we talk about the fact that he says Mr. McGarry instead of Chef McGarry? I had to do a little bit of digging into this to make sure it wasn't a blatantly disrespectful thing to Flynn, but he doesn't use chef as a prefix. So I learned that I learned something new every day, I guess. When Pete Wells writes, he says Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. He doesn't say Chef Chang or, you know, Chef Ackett's or Chef Keller or any of that. He says Mr. or Mrs interesting. It just seems kind of, kind of like a passive aggressive thing to me. But regardless, I think there's some, this is some great food writing. It's not just being honest about the food, but it's also taking in the context, right? He states that yes, the space is a cafe as well as a restaurant and the kitchen is tiny. Flynn only has two other cooks that work with him. And he's absolutely the face of the project. You can't have Jim without having Flynn McGarry. And all of these variables have to be stated to accurately review Jem. So as much as Flynn would like to be looked amongst uh, his peers in that way, where he does he wants his restaurant to be reviewed, he doesn't want to be critiqued for any of these somewhat what he might see as unrelated things. There's no doubt that there's something different about him and what that's what where the adversity comes from. Uh, again, this goes back to my criticisms about food writing and restaurant criticism these days. I like these opinionated, well-researched, thoughtful pieces about places. This this, this could have easily been a very clickbaity, like, we went to the restaurant run by a 19-year-old chef and it was meh headline, right? Like, that could have easily been written, but it wasn't. He seriously evaluated the food and gave Flynn a ton of constructive feedback that he can now use to make Jim a three or four star worthy restaurant, if that's indeed what he wants, right? It's not to say that just because a critic tells you something, you have to immediately change every single thing that you're doing. But if he does want a three or four star review in the New York Times, Pete Wells is still going to be the food critic for a while, as long as, as, as far as we know. If he, if he wants to get that accolade, he needs to kind of take this with however many grains of salt it takes for him to kind of rework what he's doing. And I think that's my biggest takeaway here. Will Flynn listen? Will he bring someone in to execute service at a higher level? Will the dining room and the flow be reworked to provide a different atmosphere? Only time will tell. I'm not entirely sure. So next up, I really hate that I have to continue to cover these stories. We had another titan of the industry pass away. Joel Robuchon has died after a long illness with cancer. He was Michelin's most decorated chef with 32 stars in 13 cities around the world, pioneering his style of cuisine classique meets nouvelle cuisine meets inspiration from Japan and Spain. If you want to see some examples, the article I have linked up includes some of those signature dishes. And I like that the author of the piece that I'm linking up actually worked uh, spent time working at a Robuchon restaurant. I thought that was an interesting spin on it. So whenever we have these tragic events, of course, the passing of the person is sad. There's no other way to say that. I don't personally cite Robuchon as a chef that I drew a lot of inspiration from. He kind of stands in that generation before mine with the Tuolgoro brothers and the Alain Ducasses. And I would even argue like the Ferran Adrias of the world where they became titans a couple of years before I got into the industry. And But then to have... For me, like where I was growing up in the industry, to have the audacity to think that you could actually learn specifically under them was kind of a long forgotten fantasy. So I was better off going to work for the next generation, the Grand Akitses, the Rene Redzepis, the Christopher Hatufs of the world, where they learned under these guys. And then they're kind of navigating what the landscape looks like now. 
And that's where I could really get some mentorship. So my thought was I can always read about Robichon's food online. I don't really necessarily need to go work for him. So what stuck out to me through researching Robichon's legacy wasn't so much his food, but the global network that he was able to build through his restaurants. The article says, quote, frequent flyers with expense accounts tend to chat each other up at each Letelier, comparing the lobster they had in Hong Kong to the one they had in London, recommending a special bottle of scotch they tasted in Las Vegas or the chocolates that came out at the end of their meal in Macau, end quote. So is his food the most creative? Not really anymore, right? Like there are countless restaurants that are serving uni with lobster jelly and cauliflower cream and parsley gelée, right? And hey, they were probably inspired by Joel Robichon, right? Is he cooking there every night anymore? Or was he towards the past 10 years? Probably not. With that many restaurants, he was probably focused much more on larger issues, more operational stuff. But both of these, with both of those possible negatives aside, I think Thomas Keller gets applauded for having two three Michelin star restaurants in one country and spending time in both of those restaurants and seeing the systems that go into creating a restaurant group like that is absolute insanity to me. And I applaud it like crazy because it's super impressive. So the fact that he has not only gone past his own, like past the original country, but across the world in all these different cities, I think it's just insanely amazing and very very impressive so i will look you i will look to you folks to correct me if i'm wrong but he's left a very very large void other than someone like i would argue nobu i struggle to think of another chef that's producing luxurious food at a super high level with a brand that is that strong i don't think there's anybody else right now that's like that and it's it's very sad that there's a void that's that large in the industry now, but I preach it all the time because it's something that I'm personally interested in, but there's so much opportunity outside of having that one restaurant that you cook at. If you've got larger ambitions to build a global enterprise where systems and individually tailored menus for varying cities all over the world sounds like a dream reality to you, just even reading that off, that sounds super fun. Uh, Joel Robichon has proved that it's possible and he's proved that there's a market for it and it's really, really sad to see such a force pass away. So not having worked at any of his spots, I remember eating at eating at one of his cafes in Hong Kong in a mall, I think. That's it. But do you, do any of you have experience in Robuchon restaurants? Tell me about what it was like to work there down low in the comments or tweet at me even because I'd really be curious to hear what that experience was like for you. Next up in a story, I think more chefs should really read and listen more, more, more so than just read it, but actually listen. Hugh Merwin at Grub Street published a piece called The Case for Restaurant Summer Vacation, Why Closing for a Week Makes Meals Better for the Rest of the Year, end quote. And they cover the guys from Contra and Wild Air, citing the fact that they have two long weekends for Thanksgiving and Christmas, as well as a seven-day closure in the summer, which isn't that far off from the Thomas Keller restaurant-style closure that happens around the same scheduling window, and they also reference that in the article. But you might be asking, yes, vacation is great, but why does the whole restaurant have to close? What's the point? And it's not... Uh, there, well, there are two arguments here. One is citing the immense work to power down the entire machine. Uh, the article saying, quote, it's not easy to power down an entire restaurant. Pans have to be emptied. Stocks need to be frozen or discarded. As things tend to fester in a humid environment, walk-ins are scrubbed. Pots and pans protected in layers of plastic wrap. Grease traps thoroughly de degreased, end quote. 
And then the other argument is stating why chefs don't take vacation, period. Uh, Kat Kinsman, who is a article, uh, who is a writer that I've covered on the show multiple times before, saying, quote, margins are so thin and rents so high that no one is making any money, restaurants or chefs. So time off feels unfathomable. People who work in New York City restaurants are so incredibly driven that they tell themselves they wouldn't even know what to do with time off. They're not encouraged to have a life outside of the kitchen, and they're made to feel as though they're letting down the line when they're out for even a day, end quote. So what is that number that they're laying on the table when she says that the margins are so thin and closing for a week seems like impossible? The article itself did some quick math and estimates it to be uh, around $60,000 for that week of being closed for Contra alone, and that's in revenue. So continuing that thought, many say that, quote, sunk cost or lost money is an investment that pays dividends over the rest of the year, right? So think about it. Happier staff means less turnover, one of the costliest hidden expenses of owning a restaurant, and that's not even referencing the fact that if your people are happier and cooking better food, right, if their mood is better and they're that much more excited to be at work and cook the dishes coming off of their station, that's kind of hard to quantify what what that cost is uh, or what that benefit is or how, like, how much would you pay for that. But it's definitely visible on the flip side when someone's unhappy and they aren't excited to be at work, right? So the article continues to cover issues like burnout and peace of mind being closed as opposed to taking a day off when service is still rolling and so much more. So if you're the kind of person that's almost against taking time away from work, I highly, highly recommend the read. I'm the kind of person that fell deep into that camp for years. I hated the idea of taking days off. It wasn't even me that didn't like having time off. I loved traveling and exploring the world. It was the idea of looking a certain way to my coworkers and being judged or not being able to hang out with the workaholics. That was the most debilitating part for me. And it all changed when I discovered that you can have both. You can work your face off when you're on, but then you could take time away and not be guilty about it. And it was it was much more sustainable for me to do that. It's not right for everyone, but in Norway, I had five weeks of vacation a year, and it was a major reason why I stayed at that restaurant as long as I did. You couldn't pay me in more money, but you could give me all this amazing time and like a hub in Europe where I could travel. I traveled everywhere. So... I was also cooking food that I was excited about and I was getting paid to do it. Um, and it's hard, it, like, it's different for everyone. You might be like, I don't know what I would do with five weeks of vacation. I would rather take a salary increase, like Mazel Tov, that's great. I'm not prescribing less or more. I just think that everyone has different priorities and there's a difference between your own issues with workaholism and the culture of a restaurant. It's, it's rhyming liquid brother. I think about alcoholism and corporate culture. Culture is the personality it's the, the, it's the, I'm taking this direct from Google. It's quote, the values, beliefs, underlying assumptions, interests, and experiences shared by a group of people, end quote. And I personally have a hard time believing that a culture of alcoholism would be beneficial for an organization. Can there be one or two alcoholics working amongst you? Totally. But that should be a problem that the individual is dealing with, and it should not affect the collective. Can the organization provide support for that? Yes, but I don't think that anyone should be guilted into working more than what they signed up for. Or worse, feeling shitty about being on holiday because everyone else is at work, right? If your restaurant isn't closed for that week or two out of the year, um, that's just how it is. Um, But again, to each their own, there's a few things that I've seen over the years that I definitely feel are not okay, and that's just my opinion. In uh, we should be we should have seen it coming news not to be outdone by Rob report a few weeks ago food and wine has come out with their list of 40 most important restaurants over the past 40 years shocker 
if for those of you that don't remember, we covered Rob Report's 30 most influential restaurants over the last 30 years. To disclaim a little bit though on this article, this is not this is just limited to the US, which makes it an interesting list because there was a definitely those few restaurants on the list that came to mind when I said I would have added a few to Rob Report's list. And they're definitely here. So Commander's Palace, uh, Blue Ginger, Charlie Trotters. I don't remember if that was on Rob Report's list or not. Shake Shack, Red Rooster, just to name a few. Some of their other picks, I f- were like a lot of the picks were good. A lot of the picks were kind of just copped from Rob Report's list. And some of the picks I felt were just to toot their own horn, right? I mean, Spoon and Stable is on the list. And they give a blurb about it saying, quote, named a food and wine restaurant of the year in 2015, end quote. Like, I'm not going to say it's not a great restaurant, but important. Do I think Spoon and Stable is an important, like one of the most important restaurants of the past 40 years? I think it's a little early out of the gate to, to be touting that around. And it's the same with Seattle's own June Baby. June Baby is featured on the list. And the blurb says, Quote, it's hard to recall a time when Eduardo Jordan, the Florida-born chef at S- Seattle's Solare and June Baby, wasn't on the national radar. And gosh, why would anyone want to? End quote. Hi, hello, I can remember Solare just opened in 2015. And even then, he wasn't making the kind of story-driven food that he's executing at June Baby back in 2015. So it's literally over the past two years. These guys are like goldfish. They don't remember anything. I'm not diminishing anyone's accomplishments, right? Like, I don't have a restaurant on that list. Like, who am I to talk? But winning two James Beard Awards in the same year is super impressive. And I've been to Solari and I've been to June Baby. It just seems like a collection of restaurants that Food & Wine has written about and a few cherry-picked American spots from Rob Report's list just to get a headline out. That's like another listicle. So personally, I'm not impressed with that list, but... I thought I was going to like it, and then I read it, and then I got my own opinion, so I wanted to share that, and that's where I'm going to kind of leave it with this story. Speaking of best restaurants, Bon Appetit published their list of best new restaurants. I covered it in the headlines portion of the show, but I wanted to share it with you folks, uh, a mini documentary that they produced and published on their YouTube channel all about a restaurant called None Such, which was awarded the number one spot on the list, which is great, but... I thought it was cool that they produced a piece of content all about that restaurant in addition to the list. So the piece of content is really good. I was really impressed. Of the big food publications like the Food and Wines and the Bon Appetits of the world, Bon Appetit does have my favorite internet presence as far as their content production quality goes with like micro content. Um, As a guy who frequently makes mini documentaries on people, I really enjoyed watching it. The audio quality is a little bit wonky at times, and the the storyboarding is very much so like chef's table where they have the chefs talk and share their story, and then they go out and get ingredients, and then they say something emotional, and then they show kind of a flurry of the dishes at the end. But the overall aesthetic is really, really good, and they essentially highlight all three chefs of the space. Yes, there's three chefs in this space. So I think... All of them are under 30 as well, and they're just in Oklahoma City cooking food at a 22-seat counter, and it's a tasting menu, but with dishes like nasturtium ice cream and sweet chimichurri, tartlet with soft scrambled egg, and new potato with paddlefish caviar, it's a kind of new Nordic meets middle America style of cooking that we've seen before at places like Husk and Cappard Seat. But the thing that stuck out to me the most was the camaraderie between the three chefs. Um, Whether it's for the camera or not, I can't 
totally say, but I can imagine what the, I can only imagine what they've been through on their journey. And they've definitely taken the big fish in the small pond approach by choosing Oklahoma City as where they want to set up shop. So it's going to be exciting to see what happens for them going forward. Uh, it's more it's just more reasons why I think Michelin needs to expand outside of the four cities in the US here where they're giving their guides and make 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 sure that the rest of the country can get some recognition. So last up, industry style, we have direct answer. You folks send me a direct message, and with your permission, of course, I like to answer in a way that might help the greater collective. So Giulio Liano asks, Hello, Justin, how are you? I'm following you on YouTube. Can I ask you a question? I'm working as a Comey chef in Ireland for a year and at an Italian restaurant, and after that, I think it's going to be time to change. What do you think is going to be better for me, another Italian restaurant or a four-star hotel? I want to improve my skills, but just the Italian food isn't enough, and I can't ask for an Italian guy because you know how they are. So uh, people think that Italian food is the best, blah, blah, blah. But anyways, so essentially the question is like you're at a restaurant, you want to kind of expand out, but you're not 100% sure if that's the right move. And also it's kind of difficult because all of your peers are telling you that the food that you're already cooking is the best. So why would you want to leave? Um absolutely a symptom that I dealt with at almost all Thomas Keller restaurants. It was very frustrating to see, whoops, it was very frustrating to see all of the sous chefs and higher ups think that Thomas Keller food was the end all be all of cuisine or like high end gastronomy. And I mean, when I was there, Meadowood, uh, Cezanne, Bennu, all of these restaurants basically got shit talked um, because they were either offshoots or not quite as good or didn't have enough finesse or, or whatever. And it was very frustrating to see. And it's one of the reasons why one of my principles now is to not talk about a restaurant in a positive or negative light um, to the extent that I feel like I've been there until I've been there. So you have to kind of make that for yourself because the truth is they're going to give you all the advice in the world and tell you what they think, but they're not going to support you. And so that's what you really need to kind of weigh in for yourself that like, unless the people that are giving you the advice have successful restaurants that are like, listen to the people giving the advice, right? If they have the, if they have restaurants of their own and they're giving you advice, that's very thoughtful based on what your values are great. But if they're going to tell you that Italian food is the best and you should only be cooking Italian food and you're not that excited about it you're going to go off and create an Italian restaurant and it's going to flop. And the reason you're going to give is going to be because I wanted to impress these guys that I used to work with. Screw you. That sounds really stupid. So just play that all the way through in your head and think about that. So what's going to be better? Another Italian restaurant or a four-star hotel? I Like figure out an organization where you're just so amped with what they're doing that you can't help but go work for them. That, that that would be my advice. Like, who is getting you so excited about what they're doing where you would wake up amped to go to work? Like, that's that's obviously the next, the next choice. Um, I hope that really answers your question because it's easy to get in that trap, especially when you're just starting, where you're looking to these people for advice, but they're giving you advice that's not necessarily tailored to what you want. Um, and I think it's really damaging. It's really sad uh, to see. But don't listen to that. Listen to what you're excited about because the truth is if you're just one year in and you're still a Comey 
you're going to have to do that three or four times to figure out, oh, I'm really actually interested in Japanese food and I really want to go work in Kyoto for two years, right? Or maybe I really like the cuisine of Peru after I saw this one chef come in and do a guest chef dinner at the French spot at the hotel that I was working at, right? So I'm always an advocate of kind of like tasting as much as possible when you're in the beginning and figuring out what it is for you that gets you excited, Um That was Direct Answer. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and wish there was a way to not only get your questions answered, but also have a dialogue back and forth, I offer one-on-one coaching sessions. And there's two ways to schedule one now. If you're getting ready to make your next move, you got to update your resume, practice answering those interview questions, what have you, and you just want to do it once, you can check out justinconnacom slash coaching. And as a thank you for listening this far into the show, use code end of the show, all one word, and get a sweet, sweet discount on your first booking. Now, let's say you're just starting culinary school, you're navigating all of that, or maybe you're on track to become a sous chef and you know the next six months are going to be crazy. The highest tier on Patreon for me now is called the mentor tier. And what comes with that is monthly coaching sessions. They're 30 minute check-ins that are designed to create a longer lasting relationship between you and me. And we set up goals that you can hit that are unique to your ambitions. And I keep a file of your progress, uh, the good and the bad, um, And we just make sure that you're doing the right things in the right way to progress your career. So that is available on patreon.com slash justinkana. And you can also support this show through that link for as little as $1 per month. In our non-industry story of the week, a quickie update. I've seen two really good movies that I don't think that I've told you folks about. The new Mission Impossible is really, really good. I had a great time seeing that movie. And Crazy Rich Asians is also a really decent movie. I didn't think that I would ever say that, but I got invited to a pre-screening of the movie a couple weeks ago. I think it comes out today or tomorrow, but it's definitely not bad. The real um, non-industry story, though, I got a new game for my Nintendo Switch. It's called Dead Cells, and the recommendation came from Philip DeFranco, a YouTuber that I watch on the daily. He was saying that he was having a blast playing it. It was like 20 bucks as a digital download, and I've been playing it every single day for the past two weeks. It's kind of a Metroid-style side-scrolling game. You get different items and upgrades and skills as you play, but the kicker is that once you die, you have to start all over at the beginning. And the combat style is super fun, and you feel like a ninja, and a lot of the combat is, like, math-based, working off of, like, percentages as you gear up, which also kind of, like, feeds my nerd side. But then the combat is really strategic and fast-paced, so it encourages you to, like, combo and dodge and roll behind people and then poison them with an arrow. And now because they're poisoned, your sword does 175% extra damage. It's just super fun. So I know... I said you start over when you die, but you definitely get permanent abilities that makes it easier as you progress the game. So I've been having a ton of fun with it. Um, The other perk with it is that every single time you restart, the map changes. So each playthrough is never the same. So I know that sounded like it would be kind of like one of those infinite games that sounds really, really annoying to play and kind of boring after a while. But because it's everything is changing so often and you're constantly micro improving, uh, it just makes it really fun. And I'm not much of a game reviewer. I'm going to stick to the kitchen gear and camera stuff. But if you have a Switch or if you're a console player, I highly, highly recommend Dead Cells to kind of take your mind off the day and get some fun gaming in. It's linked up down below if you're interested. So that'll do it for this this week's show, episode 76, as per usual. If you have stories you want covered next week, shoot them to me on Twitter, hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Let's take a quick peek at Instagram, see if there's questions that I can answer. 
Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me